Welcome to the Illinois Realtors Podcast. Today we're joined by a special guest who is visiting us here at the Illinois Realtors Public Policy Meetings in scenic East Peoria, Illinois. And of course, I'm talking about Vince Malta. Vince Malta is president of the National Association of Realtors. He has been here for the last couple of days and had some remarks uh, this morning, which touched on a number of things that I want to be able uh, to have him share with our listeners, ranging from the political environment in Washington and how NAR is adapting to that political environment. And as a bonus for you baseball lovers, we will talk a little bit about baseball, only a very specific portion of baseball, uh, authentication of baseball bats. Now, I'm telling you, you, you want to hang on to the end for this because it's going to be really, really interesting. Welcome, Vince Malta. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here in Illinois with your realtor members. We're, we're so happy to hear, have you here uh, today. And, you know, one of the things that you started out with this morning is you talked about how the political landscape has really changed quite a bit and how NAR is also having to adapt to meet these changes. Talk to me a little bit about sort of how big a change this has been for NAR. So it's a huge change because, uh, as you know, um, government has never been more divided than it is now. I know that's something that people say every once in a while, but uh, it's so very true in Washington. And so we wanted to make sure that we adapted the way that we communicate with our legislatures to make sure that our realtor message gets through. And uh, we've done several things uh, to, to achieve that. The first thing being is that we've really beefed up what's called our FPC uh, program. That's our federal political coordinators, where each member of Congress is assigned uh, a person, a realtor, uh, that's in their community that has a relationship uh, this may be a realtor that sold a congressperson their first home. They may have gone to school together. They may go to soccer games together with their kids. But they have a relationship. They've built up a trust with each other um, so that they um, can work better with this congressional member in making sure that they understand our industry, what's going on in it, and how important our housing and commercial industry is to our nation's economy. One, one point that you made that I, that I thought was interesting, I really hadn't stopped and thought about it, but, it, but it's true. There is tremendous turnover in Congress right now. And, Absolutely. And how, how in the world can you, as a very large trade organization, probably one of the largest in the country, how do you sort of manage that change? So that's a great question because there's been a huge changeover. And typically when someone is newly elected in office, they're dependent very much on, the, on their staff. Very interestingly, the uh, average age of a staff member um, is 27 years old. Okay. And they're not homeowners, typically. So there, there is a challenge. So we need to make sure that we're communicating directly with that congressional member um, or that we're able to send people in the office that can communicate with the staffers to make sure that they understand our issues. Now, the turnover in 2020, uh, we're going to have every seat in the House. And for those of you who keep track, it's 435 seats in the House that will turn over. One-third of the Senate will turn over. And of course, we've got a presidential election this year, which could mean another turnover. So that is a challenge, is to making sure that we keep those relationships going to make sure our message is heard. Now, NAR always has taken a stance that we're, we're, we're not Republican, we're, we're, we're not Democratic, we're not independent. 
we're all about what's best for our practitioners and the consumers who rely on them when it comes to housing. And so I guess the, the question here is, how, how do you walk that line in such a, a hyper-partisan atmosphere? Well, um, you're right. Our, our issues are not red or blue, they're purple. They transcend the, uh, the aisle. And so what we've done is we've realigned our, our staff to communicate with them on, um, let's say, we'll, we'll assign someone to a Democratic staff member, someone to a Republican, so we're dividing that because there's different rules, there's different, um, let's say, different rules in the House versus the Senate. Um, there are different committees that uh, various Republicans and Democrats are assigned to, so those expertises t typically go along party lines to make sure that, that our issues are heard. But again, they do transcend both sides of the aisle. And that's a very fortunate thing. That's why some of our issues could have bipartisan support, which is in a divided house. It's, it's imperative that, uh, that it has because uh, we can get things through the house, but then if there's no bipartisan support, you can't get them through, let's say, Republican Senate when we have a Democratic House. So um, we're working uh, very diligently in making sure that we align the right people uh, with the right process. Now, of course, we went through a big tax reform effort uh, several years ago. Illinois uh, vies with New Jersey for the title. It's a dubious title of having the highest property taxes in the nation. Uh, Congratulations. We, yeah, I, yeah it's, it's sort of a race to the bottom, <laughs> oh. I guess. But, but you know, the question is when you look at the state and local taxes, uh, you know, there, there is a cap of $10,000 on state and local taxes that you can deduct on your, on your tax forms, which is great perhaps if you live in a very low-tax state, it's not so great if you live in a high-tax state. And I'm wondering if NAR is working on any kind of effort to try to raise that so you can help people who live in states with such a high tax burden. It's our goal to remove the cap, okay? Because I think there's some unintended consequences there. Um, so, so we were successful in getting the cap removed on the House side. Um, it's going to be a challenge, of course, getting it removed on the Senate side because it's Republican and they do not want to see the Tax Reform Act of 2017 eroded. And then, of course, it'll be a challenge again for the president to sign any such thing. So, again, we need to look at alternatives. Uh, when we were fighting against the Tax Reform Act as proposed, uh, we didn't really sufficiently provide an alternative. Now, we were very successful in getting changes to the Tax Reform Act to make sure it was more palatable, but we didn't have viable alternatives to look at. And I think as we move forward, we're going to make sure that we have more things on the table that we could look at uh, in moving it forward so that it could alleviate some of the, 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 uh, the effect that it's had on high-cost states in, in particular. Um, because it's, we don't want a policy that's designed for one-size-fits-all. That's not the way our nation works. And so we're looking forward to putting more things on the table to, to address uh, what's happened with the SALT limitations and the cap on them. We're talking with Vince Malta, the 2020 president of the National Association of Realtors, who is appearing here in East Peoria at the Illinois Realtors Public Policy Meetings. Vince, you, you grew up and, and, and still live in San Francisco. Um, you're a huge Giants fan, among uh, uh, among other things. Uh, we won't hold that against you. In and remember, state. New York Giants fans, that's San Francisco Giants 
Right. Yes. Entire, entirely <laughs> different. Yeah, yes. Let's, let's be clear on that. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, living in San Francisco, I mean, it's one of the more dynamic real estate markets in the country. It's also one of the most expensive. And there's some real profound housing issues that come into play in a market like San Francisco. How did your experience living and working in San Francisco help shape your approach to the NAR presidency? Well, thank you for that question, and uh, let me say that uh, it's been a challenge in in providing uh, housing uh, when you have your median home price now approaching one point five million dollars. Okay, and, and people complain here when sometimes at certain seasons it gets up close to three hundred thousand in Chicago. <laughs> wow. Um, so I'll say that the reason I got so involved with organized real estate was because of some of the laws that came into effect at the local level. And it was very difficult to get them changed at the local level, so we moved to the state level to get them changed. One of them, for instance, is rent control. Rent control, San Francisco will show you that rent control has had no positive effect on the cost of housing. Anyone that thinks that, there are many studies um, on that, um, uh, will prove that rent control is not an effective policy to alleviate or to help affordable housing. So I really got involved at the state level and, um, and we were able to be successful to, to pass state legislation, which you have currently, thank goodness, in Illinois, that I hope that you're successful in maintaining because um, rent control, again, is not the solution. So my work at the state level and then getting involved at the national level was from the advocacy side of the organization and understanding that there are different approaches to different issues and that people like to politicize any issue, the homeless, etc., to further their political gain. We're now looking for sensible solutions at all levels of government, local, state, and national. So the way I approach this is, is that a lot of solutions are best left at the local level if possible. So NAR is looking to invest in those discussions at the local level by providing grants so that you could bring people together in the local communities, your state, and, and work on solving those issues. There's only so much we can do regarding, let's say, the affordability issue at the national level, but there's so much you could do at the local and state level. I, I do want to shift uh, topics real quick and talk a little bit about fair housing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know this is something that you have been working on for some time. This year, it's really become, I think, more prominent for a couple reasons. One, we, we saw that there were allegations of violations uh, in the Long Island area. Uh, but then also, uh, you were just recently at a meeting with Ben Carson where NAR was working to try to uh, make fair housing a much more prominent part of what we do as a national association, hopefully with every other association. Uh, can, can you talk to me about sort of the process, uh, what you saw was the real need, and how NAR was going to fill that when it came to fair housing? Okay. Interestingly, uh, we've been working on um, beefing up fair housing uh, earlier in 2019 before the Newsday article had come out. And we uh, formed a fair housing committee um, that looked at fair housing issues across the country. And, and so that committee will be starting this year, but it was formed before Newsday. Uh, we also had hired uh, Brian Green, uh, who is someone that uh, I hope many of our members will be working with in developing um, uh, fair housing um, uh, policies and, and programs. 
uh, Brian was hired uh, also before the Newsday article. And I think, though, that what's important is the Newsday article really showed that the importance of what we need to do, not only in the classroom, but actually in practice. And so we want to make sure that our members are on the leading edge of, of fair housing and they could apply what they learn in the classroom to actual everyday parts of their business. And that's what ACT accountability uh, is, is about uh, in training. And we want to make sure that um, our members uh, in all states um, and local levels are, have equal educational opportunities um, to, to, to uh, work on fair housing initiatives in their communities. I, I, I would guess that this means that there's going to be a very deep uh, attention to programming at NAR events, uh, much more in the way of fair housing content than probably there has been before. Is that fair to say? So right, and you'll see that in D.C. in May. Uh, fair housing is going to be uh, the centerpiece of uh, what we're working on in our conferences. Um, is so vitally important. So we've built that into our culture. It's been a part of our culture for 112 years. In fact, fair housing, actually, right now, our code of ethics is ahead of, of federal law. And so um, we're working very diligently, again, to make sure that's worked into practice for our members. Because federal, federal law, federal fair housing law, does not provide protections for gay and lesbian homeowners. Correct. And but our code but of ethics does. The code of ethics does. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see a path toward eventually getting that put into the federal Fair Housing Act? It may take time, but absolutely. And we're working towards that. Housing equality for all. So I promised uh, our listeners that we would also talk a little bit about baseball. Now, you're a uh, huge baseball fan, as I mentioned. You are a uh, San Francisco Giants fan. Uh, but you also have, uh, I guess it began as a hobby, but then has now sort of become a, a real sideline for you, and that is authenticating historic baseball bats. Now, uh, how did you get into this? So, um, first of all, I love history, and I think that's why I love baseball so much, because it has such a rich history. And with baseball bats, you really learn a lot about a player's player characteristics. It's the only piece of equipment that they're allowed to modify in any, any way, really, by the pine tar, the scoring of a bat, uh, the size, the dimensions, the weight. So it's something that's very varied. So when you see the bat, you, know, you really learn a lot about how the hitter approaches the batter's box. So uh, that's how I got involved. I just love the history. But it evolved from collecting to authenticating because as a realtor, I realized that the hobby was very deficient in, in honesty and ethics. And uh, the people that were selling these bats were just selling stories with nothing really behind it. No one was really doing research. There was no knowledge. There was no uh, common definitions. So what happened was I took our principles of what we do as realtors and applied it to the hobby. And when I started collecting bats, there may have been about 30 so-called authenticators that were really just dealers trying to sell stories of bats. And today, in the hobby, there's only a few, and that's myself and my business partner in New Jersey that, that takes in the bats and, and we uh, authenticate them uh, together. And so it's something that uh, I think that our principles as being realtors really carry forward um, 
and have been very successful for me allowing me to authenticate and look at some really great baths over time. So when you get a bath, let's say somebody comes in and says, well, I have a bath that was used by Babe Ruth, okay. dating from the 20s. Sure. What do you look for? What, what are sort of the markers that you look for as you go through to authenticate one of so, these? And that's very important because if it was made in the 20s versus the 40s, well, if it was made in the 40s, we know that Babe Ruth retired in 1935, so he could not have used it. So it's very important that the bat should speak for itself, not just the story that Grandpa gave me this bat and said that Babe Ruth used it. So uh, what I look for is I look at the wood because uh, a wood um, is something that, that uh, is, has to be the right age for the bat. But very importantly, I look at the stampings, the, the brandings on the bat. Um, and fortunately, Louisville Slugger changed their brandings periodically to match their corporate logo because their names changed over periods of time. So I was able to look at when those brandings changed. And within a two-year period, many times, I could tell when a bat was made. And then, Louisville Slugger opened up their library to me. Um, the first person that they really opened it up to. Um, and I was able to go through their shipping records and determine the length and weight and sometimes model numbers uh, and matching it up with various years. So now we have really good information, not just stories that help us determine whether a bat was made during a specific period of time. And lastly, what I look for is I look for player use characteristics. Babe Ruth, for instance, loved to score his bats with a bottle cap and uh, to cut the spin of a ball. And he would do it on the area of the bat that he knew he would hit it. So I know what area of the bat that I would be looking for that. And if you really have something really tremendous, Babe Ruth used to notch his bats. Every time he would hit a home run, he would notch a bat just around the, the oval. And those are real American treasures. If you could find a notched bat that Babe Ruth hit a home run with, and, uh, people look at that as like the gunslinger. Um, and, uh, and Ruth probably um, hit a lot of home runs in a period of time. And uh, uh, it's, it's just an American icon. How many bats do you have in your personal collection, and what's your favorite? Okay, well, I had many bats in my personal collection, but because I authenticate, I no longer own a lot of bats. So I've had some great bats. I've had uh, a bat that Mickey Mantle hit a home run uh, in the World Series in 1964 to break uh, Beirut's home run record for World Series play. That bat is on display in Yankee Stadium now, as well as several of the bats. I've had Willie Mays bats, who was one of my favorite players, hit a home run. Um, uh, so I've had a lot of great bats. Jackie Robinson, another icon of baseball. Uh, some of my favorite bats are the bats of the golden era, I would say, from the 20s through the 1960s of, of baseball that I've enjoyed collecting uh, the most. But I no longer own those bats because uh, I am the authenticator, so I cannot sell a bat. I would disclose that I own a bat and authenticating a bat. And as a realtor, as you know, you disclose those types of things. And so um, uh, I really don't uh, own bats, so I really now authenticate them, so I've transcended into that. How, how many bats a year do you get asked to look at? Oh, thousands. Thousands. We, uh, you can't possibly do thousands, though. So that's why I have my business partner in Jersey. He has uh, several secretaries that help us input all this information, and then we look at the bats and do the authentication, the letters, and all of that. We do it for private collectors and auction houses uh, in the country.
Illinois Realtors has been talking with Vince Malta, the 2020 National Association of Realtors president. Vince joins us at the Illinois Realtors public policy meetings in East Peoria. If you're interested in hearing other podcasts, please check out our podcast channel. You can find those at podcast.illinoisrealtors.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.